So in verse 3, Paul writes this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In other words, Paul is praising or blessing God for all the spiritual blessings that we've been given as Christians in Christ. And he's encouraging us to do the same. So what are those spiritual blessings that we've been given in Christ? Here's the outline that we laid out for these verses last week. Point one, election. Spiritual blessing number one that we have in Christ. We're chosen by the Father. We see that in verses 3 through 6. Point two, redemption. So we're chosen by the Father, but we're redeemed by the Son. Verses 7 through 10, that's what we're going to focus on today. And then point three, inheritance. We're chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, and assured by the Spirit. Verses 11 through 14. That's what we'll look at next week. So, again, last week we learned that the spiritual blessing number one was election. And that it happened in the past. Before the foundation of the world, the text says. This election also led to the blessings of being a bride. And being an adopted child of the Father. Amazing truths for us to cling to and to cherish as believers. Today, we're going to take a look at blessing number two, redemption. So, let's dive back into the text. Verses 7 through 10. This is the word of the Lord. In Him, meaning in Christ, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. According to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. So, if spiritual blessing number one was election, spiritual blessing number two is redemption. How many of you are familiar with the Underground Railroad? Yeah, most, if not all of you. It was a network of secret routes and safe houses that abolitionists used in the early 19th century to help slaves escape to freedom. Now, I'm going to give you a totally fictitious scenario, but hang with me. I want you to imagine with me for a second that you're on that Underground Railroad. You're an ardent abolitionist during that time. And you find your way into a large group of slaves. You're there to help them gain their freedom. But once you're there, you quickly realize that They don't realize that they're slaves. To you, it's patently obvious that they're trapped, imprisoned, enslaved to a cruel master. But they don't see it. And they don't want out. While that's not a real story, unfortunately, it's very real in the spiritual realm. 
The scriptures are abundantly clear, as we'll soon see, that all of humanity is enslaved. Slaves to a cruel taskmaster that's destroying them. And they don't even know it. But praise God. The Bible is also clear that there's a way of escape. There's a way to gain freedom permanently and eternally. And that's redemption. Again, right from the start, Paul repeats that this specific blessing, redemption, is in him, meaning Christ. No spiritual blessings detour around Christ. Our union with him, being made one with him, being in him, is where all of our blessings flow from. We're not self-redeemed. We can't redeem ourselves, not even a little bit. In Him, we have redemption. In Him, we have redemption. I'll stop right there for just a second. Do you notice the verb tense here? In Him, we have. It's a present tense verb. So last week we were dealing with something that happened in the past, before the foundation of the world. But this blessing is now. It's not something that the believer is waiting for. It's current, in our hands, present tense. It's not something that that we hope to have. It's something that we have. Now, what is it? That we have. Redemption. It's a word that we use a lot. We sing about it a lot as Christians. And for good measure. We sing and speak about Jesus being our Redeemer. But what does that mean? One theologian defines it this way. Redemption is an act of God by which he himself pays as a ransom the price for sin, which has outraged his holiness. I'll read that again. Redemption is an act of God by which he himself pays as a ransom the price for sin, which has outraged his holiness. Redemption carries with it the connotation of release from bondage or imprisonment or slavery. And it was a concept that both Jews and Gentiles were very familiar with. In the Old Testament, there was a person known as a goel, or sometimes it's translated kinsman redeemer, goel. And his responsibility was to keep the property in the family whenever possible. So when a relative lost property through debt or some other means the Redeemer would show up and buy it back for them, restoring it to the family. We see Boaz doing this in the book of Ruth. So a Goel, a kinsman redeemer. Also, in the Old Testament, there was what's known as a kofer, which means a ransom price. And let me give you just a, a scenario. If, if you owned a bull, and that bull got loose and killed someone. There were three different options for justice to be done. 
your bull killed someone. Number one, the bull could be killed in payment for the life taken. Two, if you were somehow negligent, you could be killed in payment. The third option was a settlement price that could be made with the family of the deceased to redeem the life of the animal so that it didn't have to be killed, or for the owner of the animal, for you not to be killed. That price of redemption was known as the kofer. So Jews were very familiar with this idea of redemption. Gentiles were also very familiar with this concept. In the world of human slavery, it was common to see slaves paid for and then set free. Contracts like the following were widespread throughout the the Greek world. So-and-so pays to the Pythian Apollo the sum of blank for the slave blank on the condition that he or she shall be set free. In other words, if you had a loved, loved one who was enslaved, you could go and purchase their freedom. And that is the connotation of the Greek word that Paul uses here in our text for redemption. Apollutrosis is the word. A price paid for release and freedom from slavery. And one of the most clear pictures that we have in Scripture of redemption comes in the Old Testament. And it was meant to foreshadow and to point forward to Christ. It's the story of the Exodus. So instead of reading it, because it's such a long, great story, I'm just going to give you the Cliff Notes version. Here's the Exodus. The people of Israel, God's chosen people, they end up in slavery in Egypt under Pharaoh. Moses encounters God in the burning bush in Exodus 3. God reveals himself to Moses and he says that he's going to deliver his people out of slavery. He calls Moses to go and to speak to Pharaoh, the slave master. In chapter 4, verses 22 through 23, God says this to Moses. He says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Do you see that? What did we learn last week that we are in Christ? Adopted sons. Firstborn sons. God isn't leaving his firstborn son in slavery, is he? No. He's going after him. He's going to go get him. Exodus chapter 6, verses 5 through 7. The story continues. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you, there's that word, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. 
And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Epic, right? It's like in the action movies where someone's trapped or imprisoned. And the hero of the story shows up and says, Don't worry, I'm here. I'm going to get you out of this. That's what God had promised them. Because of the covenant that he had made to them. He's a promise-making and promise-fulfilling God. So, he follows through. And he bails them out. He redeems them. We'll come back to how he redeemed them a bit later. So, Pharaoh finally just lets them go. He lets them go and they're heading out. Pharaoh tries to chase them down to enslave them again. God miraculously parts the Red Sea, allowing his people to cross on dry land. Then, when the Egyptians try to cross, they're flooded. Well, on the other side of the shore, redeemed and safe, the people of God, led by Moses, sing a song. It's in Exodus chapter 15, and it starts like this. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The song continues, and it walks through how God destroyed their oppressors. Then, in verse 13, it says this. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. So they're singing a song of redemption about God. Redeeming his people, his firstborn, in his steadfast love. And guiding them to his holy place. Does that sound familiar? It's supposed to. The Exodus story was, was God's way of pointing to what he would do in Christ. It was the scaffolding that was holding up the mystery that would one day be revealed. And we'll get to that later. So Jesus is the new Exodus. Jesus is the new Exodus. Redemption is a powerful, powerful truth. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. And that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In John chapter 8 verse 34, Jesus says this. He says, truly, truly, I say to you. Check this out. Everyone who practices sin is what? A slave to sin. <clears throat> Similarly, Romans 6, 6 verse, sorry, Romans 6, verse 17 says that we're slaves to sin. Romans 7, 14 says this. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Do you see that? Every single one of us before Christ was a slave to sin, imprisoned, in bondage, and therefore condemned to death 
and eternal damnation. Justly, by the way. There's no unrighteousness in God for pouring out the full amount of His wrath on sin. We talked about this in the Q&A after the service last Sunday. Even in unconditional election, no one gets injustice. No one gets injustice. You either get justice for your sin justly, or you get mercy. The reprobate get what they deserve. They get justice for sinning brazenly and boldly against the creator of the universe. The elect get mercy. They get redeemed. Again, so many people want to to look at that and say, that's not fair that God doesn't redeem the reprobate. Well, here's the deal. The question isn't, why doesn't God save everybody? It's, why does God save anybody? It's not that, that, that some of us deserve it and the others don't. None of us deserve it. It's not like God looks at our resumes and decides, yeah, I'm going to save this one. If he looked at our resumes, none of us would be acceptable. It's all of grace. I'm getting ahead of myself. We were slaves to sin. Slaves to sin. The bondage of sin and death held every single one of us captive. And in Him, in Christ, we have redemption through payment. But what was that payment? Look again at verse 7, back in our text. In Him, we have redemption through His blood. Through His blood. Back to the Exodus. How did God redeem His people out of slavery in the Exodus? Through the blood of a perfect lamb. Every firstborn in Egypt was going to die. And in their place, a lamb did. Its blood was spread over the doorpost of the house. And they were spared. Jesus, like the Passover lamb, shed his blood to redeem adopted sons and daughters. Let that sit with you for a second. Do you realize just how costly your redemption was as a Christian? It cost the shedding of Jesus' blood, the Son of God. And to be clear, what we mean by His blood is His life. He gave His life for our redemption. Let's look at how Scripture talks about this. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, Paul says this. He says, You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19 says this, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. 
precious blood of Christ. It's incalculable, calculable, invaluable, priceless. That's what it costs to redeem you. That's what we should think about it and be grateful for each and every time that we take the Lord's Supper together. The blood of Christ, which was shed for us at great expense. This truth should humble us. We should be the most thankful and joyful people on the planet because of it. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 12 through 14 says this. He, meaning Jesus, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing what? An eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more? Will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to what? To serve the living God. Amazing. This truth should not only humble us, but look at that. It leads us to serve the living God in response. Further, This is a song of praise that's being sung in heaven and will be sung in heaven forever. Check this out. Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 through 12. It's a vision of what's going on in heaven. Revelation 5, 9 through 12. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. They're singing this to Jesus, the Lamb. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne, And the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbered myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Christian, we have redemption through His precious blood. Praise God for that truth. And look at, look at the result of this redemption. The result is the forgiveness of our trespasses. The forgiveness of our trespasses. So not only are you redeemed and free, you're forgiven. You can have your cake and eat it too. It's amazing. This is ridiculously great news. This word forgiveness... It means pardon, letting go, dismissal, release, a canceling of legal debt. This is the greatest version of a cancel culture in the whole universe. Your sin debt is canceled, and you're not. Isn't that amazing? Your sins, my sins, are forgiven in Christ. Anyone can be forgiven no matter what their sin is. Even if 
to use a financial analogy, even if you've racked up millions and millions of dollars in debt, your debt can be forgiven and canceled in an instant through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. If you don't believe me, look at this small list of scriptures. You've probably heard these a time or two in our assurance of pardon. Psalm 103, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgression from us. Isaiah 44, verse 22. God says, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Jeremiah 31, verse 34. God says, And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Micah chapter 7, verse 19. says, He, meaning God, will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Again, in the Lord's Supper, Matthew chapter 26, verses 27 through 28, Jesus holds up the cup and he says this. He says, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is why Christians throughout the ages have concluded the Apostles' Creed with these words. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Jesus forgives sins. And another aspect of this to consider is this. In the Old Testament, there's this thing called the Day of Atonement. Yom Kippur, you might have heard it. And on that day, they had two goats. One would be killed, and its blood sprinkled on the altar. The other goat, known as the scapegoat, would have the priest's hands laid on its head, representing that all of the people's sins were being laid on it. Then they would take that scapegoat with all the people's sins on it, and that goat was sent out of the camp into the wilderness, never to be seen again. Sins atoned for and gone forever. If you're out there and you're thinking, this is unbelievable. It's too good to be true. If you're thinking that, if that's you, you're actually understanding the gospel. Forgiveness in Christ is unfathomable. For those who turn from sins and trust in Christ, there is forgiveness for sins. All sins. The Bible says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And remember the verb tense? Forgiveness isn't something that you'll get one day. Christian, 
You are forgiven. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. And look at this last clause in verse 7. It says, In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. According to the riches of His grace. There's nothing stingy about God here. Kent Hughes tells this story about John Rockefeller. Many of you know who John Rockefeller is. But Kent Hughes says this. He says, John D. Rockefeller was the richest man in the world at one point. The richest man America had ever produced. And he says, if Rockefeller wished to give of his riches, there were two ways that he could. He could give according to his riches... Or from his riches. History records that he most often did the latter, giving from his riches. The most famous picture of Rockefeller shows him as a wizened old man dressed in a top hat and a cutaway coat, giving a dime to some little orphan. Rockefeller reportedly did this again and again and again to pre- uh, to, for the press to take a picture of him. One wonders how many boys were truly set on the road to wealth and moral excellence by a wonderful gift from Rockefeller's fortune. But think what it would have been like had he given according to his riches. Think about that. Do you see this, brothers and sisters? God, not Rockefeller, God, the creator of the universe gives to us according to the riches of His grace. There's no tight-fistedness when it comes to God's grace. You could never exhaust God's grace as His child. And make no mistake about it. It is God's grace that saves us and redeems us. It's His unmerited favor. Again, There's nothing in us that deserves it. Or by definition, it wouldn't be grace. It'd be something we're owed from God. But it's not. It's grace. And look at this next clause in verse 8. How does God give us His grace? Verse 8, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. He lavished upon us. Lavish. It's the idea of excessive and overflowing. I'll ask us this question. Have you ever been accused of giving someone excessive grace? That's the character of God that we're called to display as individuals and as a church. Lavish, overflowing, excessive grace. Now, Paul cuts us off at the pass with our objection here. Some of you may be thinking, wait, hold on a minute. Does that mean that we should just keep on sinning? Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Paul says, what shall we say then? He asks the question for us. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. There you go. The answer is no. We shouldn't keep on sinning. You can't out-sin God's lavish and excessive grace. 
It truly is, as we sang earlier, amazing grace. Again, if you're thinking it's too good to be true, you're actually understanding it. That's the story of the entire Bible. From start to finish, there are sinful people who God would be just in obliterating in His wrath. But He's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He's gracious and merciful. That's the story in the church as well. We're sinners who need God's grace and mercy every day. There's only one hero in the Bible and in the church, and that's Jesus. It's in Him that we're redeemed and forgiven and provided lavish grace. And it's given to us, the text says, in all wisdom and insight. Do you see that? While it may seem unbelievable to us, it's not reckless or out of control. It's not haphazard or random. God, who is the most wise, knows exactly what He's doing. It's given to us in all wisdom and insight. Now, how does this redemption and forgiveness and grace, how does it come to us? Yes, in Christ. But how do we know about it? What's God's marketing strategy for advertising these riches? Look at verse 9. Making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ. Can you imagine if you had a really rich uncle who had zillions and zillions of dollars that were set aside for you, but you didn't know about it? Can you imagine that? That wouldn't do you much good, would it? But we have a rich and lavish God who actually reveals himself to us. He makes known to us the mystery of his will. And this idea of mystery, it's important in the book of Ephesians. It's actually a main theme that we'll see over and over and over again. Mystery. And what it means is this. Mystery is a truth once hidden, but now made known. A truth once hidden, but now made known. Explicitly, we'll find out in Ephesians that this truth is that all nations will be made one in Christ. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6 says this. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. A couple verses later, Ephesians 3, 9 says, And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things. And then Ephesians 5.32, same word, Paul says, This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Here's the point. This mystery was hidden in the Old Testament, but not invisible. Hidden, but not invisible. Throughout the Old Testament, God leaves breadcrumbs that lead to Christ, where this mystery is fully unveiled. Over and over and over again, God makes promises and fulfills promises 
and points toward the culmination in Christ. Then, Jesus enters human history and he reveals himself fully. He calls apostles like Paul who write the New Testament and reveal the gospel clearly. Here's what I want us to see. God doesn't leave us in the dark on who he is or what he's done in Christ. His riches are known to us and fully accessible through Christ. And the result of all of this, look at verse 10. As a plan for the fullness of time. To do what? To unite all things in him. Things in heaven and things on earth. Well, there's some discussion around what Paul means by all things here. He seems to mean this. One, all things refer to all regenerated souls, believers. Two, the created universe. So, all regenerated souls in the created universe. So, all believers all around the world. Christians in Singapore and in Santa Cruz, in Afghanistan and in Aptos, united in Christ. But it's even more than that. It's all believers of all times. So the church militant, or those who are alive and fighting the good fight here on earth, the church militant, and the church triumphant, those who have died and gone to be with Christ, things in heaven and things on earth, all regenerated souls, and the created universe. We know that in the Garden of Eden, the earth itself was cursed because of sin, right? And we know that we now live in a broken world. All of that will be renewed and brought under the headship of Christ. This is glorious. Look at how Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. Romans 8, 18 through 25. He says, for I, cons- for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. You see that language? Set free from bondage. Set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pangs of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This was the plan for the fullness of time. That Christ would redeem his sons and daughters as the first fruits of redeeming all creation and bringing all things together in him 
to His glory. Can you believe that we get to be a part of that? That's unreal. What a blessing. So, let's praise God for the blessing of redemption and for forgiveness and for His lavish grace poured out on us in Christ. Let's pray.